sound very enthusiastic. I'm so enthusiastic. No fucking idea. <laughs> okay. Just no fucking clue. No freaking clue. Okay. Hmm. Well, we're back. Are you recording? Yes. Special guest. All first. right. <laughs> What's up, motherfuckers? <laughs> I'm I'm stoked. I'm here to call people out. I'm fired up. I'm here to call people out. I'm here to get called out. And most of all, I'm here to have fun. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like you've had a very pent up week. I feel like you, you well, haven't really had any human interaction. And I mean, now you can human like interact it. with me. Just sitting in my chair, just, you know, studying my law stuff, you know? Um, just really just going deep on it, you know, deep inside my mind, you deep know? In the brain hole. That's where all the really dark stuff just kind of gets stirred up. So I'm here with some angry angry thoughts oh no so i hope you know i i mean you know i just I'm, I'm ready to get right into it you know you want to get right into it let's go you want me to shoot you the, the first the first hot news i hot news want some news i want to be pissed off you know something that you know so something to make me like you know this actually might make you angry hit me with it so ah! oh god all right at 23 years and counting this ohio chihuahua is the world's oldest dog i'm livid Spike the Chihuahua, who resides in Camden, Ohio, was crowned the oldest living dog in December at 23 years and 7 days. 23 years old? He's, at this point, he was older than me. This dog's older than I am. Hmm. You know, um, let me be the first to say, I don't believe it. Well, Pebbles, the Pebbles? previous oldest living dog, died in Octo- on October 5th, months before her 23rd birthday, and Spike, as much as you seem to want to hate him, was found in a parking lot of a local grocery store 13 years ago. And the family decided to adopt him after he hopped like right into their car. And his family said he looked rough when they got him. His back was shaved. His neck was bloody from like a chain or a rope. And he was living off scraps given to him by the grocery store clerk. But then they like took him like into the vet. And the vet's like, yeah, he's like at least 10. You know. And they picked him up 13 years ago. I love that chihuahua. Do you know what I don't like? Chihuahua owners, not a bit. Uh, what about these people? They found him in a parking lot. I mean that. All, I mean that sounds like made up because they think they're gonna get like an Air Bud movie at some point over this whole thing. You know, over a Chihuahua. Maybe if it was like a, like a sporting dog, a Chihuahua. You don't. You don't but adopt you, a Chihuahua and think like. This dog's gonna change the world. No, yeah, that cl- dog can't even walk outside without shaking like a leaf. Clean him up, give him like a, a funny backstory. Suddenly he's on Beverly Hills Chihuahua Four, and they're making all the noise. I'm just saying, sounds like a great dog, but the only sort of dog owners that I would think would lie about their dogs, they should get them on the news. Chihuahua owners, German Shepherd owner, never gonna do that. But Chihuahua owners, no, maybe. Yeah. Did suspect. you ever like see like the world's like instead of like the Westminster Dog Show, they do like the world's ugliest dog? And it was always, like, those Chinese crusteds that, like, look like they got, like, absolutely struck by lightning and, like, put through a wood chipper. It looks like they just, like, lack any sort of tissue on the front of their face because, like, their teeth yeah. are just, like, going, going coming straight Why up. does that always happen? Yeah. And, like... In, like, you in, know how when dead bodies, like, their kind of lips shrivel up so their teeth are like this? Right. You know what's crazy? It's like that, but they're alive. And, and those, they're dogs. And those dogs are just, like, only marginally more handsome than chihuahuas. Like, we're really talking some hot you shit about think, dogs. Oh, wow. You think chihuahuas are uglier? I don't hate them, but it's, like, you know, I think... Uh, it's just, a, it's just a very particular looking kind of dog, and I think we're, we're calling this other kind of dog ugly when, like, frankly, if I'm squinting, I'm not seeing the difference, you know? Mm, okay. Yeah. Well, there's that chihuahua in our building. Not going to name names. You that... shouldn't. I'll, I'll hunt him down. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know this chihuahua. But he is old, and he yeah. doesn't have teeth. 
And the person, like, that owns him prefaces it constantly by, oh, he doesn't have teeth, like, he's harmless. But the dog growls at Smokey every time we go up there. The dog just growls. And I'm like, just because your dog is, like, harmless because he's the size of a gerbil, like, doesn't mean that he can be a little shit stain. It almost sounds like you're kind of agreeing with me about this whole thing that, like, Chihuahua owners no, I do. are I agree. just, like, really not on the up and up. They, they seem like they would lie about random stuff. If you want a dog, the dog has to at least be able to, like... I mean, we have Smokey, so we can't yeah. say a lot. He is trying to get his ball out of a, like, tangle of cords right now, and he can't figure it out. He is about as smart as a fern. I'm, I'm just saying, Chihuahua owners, like, you're on notice, you know. Um, and I'm, and I'm <laughs> Fix coming, yourself. Fix and your life. And I'm coming for you. Hmm. It's it's too late. They're not staying winning. No, no time to check yourself, because I'm already winning. coming to... Wreck yourself. You know what wrecked you the other night? What's that? That miso soup we ate. Miso soup. More like miso horny. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't actually look up the origins of miso horny. It's It feels like an Austin Powers sort of thing, you know? But it might just be one of those, like, archetypical, like, you know, the Great Flood is, like, in, like, cultures all across time. Is like, everyone kind of understands, like, this whole, like, concept of a heroic Great Great Flood. Maybe miso horny. Might it might just be just from like human wide archetypical joke we like have. Like it's within our like collective unconscious. I would say so. Like I would say so. Well, I think everyone knows to say it. According to songfacts.com, the title phrase comes from the movie Full Metal Jacket, where "Me so horny, me love you long time" is spoken by a Vietnamese prostitute. Well, I don't know about that one. I don't know. That's just that's what the internet says. <laughs> my, that was my, my, honestly my like a really bad pitch for like a really bad segment that we've like had planned out for like a week. Yeah, kind of gave you a long time to say, you know, to set me up for that one, you know. But I think, nonetheless, I think we knocked out of the park, you know. I think you're correct. Yeah, yeah. A sailor has been rescued after being adrift in the Caribbean for 24 days. 24 days a sailor's yeah. been adrift in the Caribbean? The Colombian Navy rescued hmm. Alvis Francois, 47 years old, from Dominica after he survived <laughs> 24 days at sea off ketchup, garlic powder, and seasoning cubes. Ketchup, garlic... <laughs> <laughs> I go, well, I just, I just want a croissant. <laughs> so he was making repairs to his boat when currents pulled the boat out to sea in December off the island of St. Martin in the Netherlands and Tiles. Antils? So Francois wrote help yep. on the side of his hull, which was spotted by air 120 <laughs> nautical miles northwest of La Guajara. La Guajara? I think you're trying to say LaGuardia. La- no. <laughs> That's absolutely wrong. <laughs> Where is LaGuardia? It's an airport in New York. Okay, it's in New York. No, this was not there. <laughs> it was a peninsula. Okay. LaGuajara. LaGuara? Oh, Guadalajara. Less syllables. Less <laughs> syllables. So, and then this got me, I was really, really bored at work today because this got me looking up, what's the difference between a nautical mile and a land mile? That's a good, Because I mean, they I, always say nautical miles. Yeah. So a nautical mile is 1.1508 land miles, and that's because it's based off of the Earth's longitude and latitudinal coordinates. So one nautical mile is one minute of latitude. Huh. Which I don't get why they're not the same. You know. Because there's latitude and longitude on land and in the water. Well, and then, and then, and then what's knots, you know? My sister uses knots a lot when she's flying. I don't even think she knows what they are. I thought, like, I thought, and this might be totally wrong, I thought knots came about because it used to be one of their old, like, it's measures. Like naughty. That's right, dude. That <laughs> is right. It's like, oh, it's a sailor. You're looking awful naughty today. Oh, no, um, just seamen talking how naughty. Hmm. <laughs> no, but I thought they had the, they they had a length of rope, and they would delineate their like lengths. 
by like these knots. And so it was kind of like a randomly chosen metrics. And so as a knot kind of passed over the boat, cause it would kind of like let it go off into the water. You know, as I'm describing this, this is sounding stupider and stupider long I keep, long I keep well, talking. Well, apparently a knot is 1.15078 miles per hour. It's not a distance, yeah. it's a speed. So, so, so here's a more global question. Why do sailors and boaters in general need to feel special? I mean, clearly they're making up their own, you know, units of, of, of metrics, you know, so they, they can't just say miles. Like Francois signaled a plane with a mirror. This guy actually seemed like he was kind of like thriving out there on the ocean as much as he could off of garlic salt and seasoning packets. Have you ever seen All Hope is Lost with uh, American classic actor Robert Redford? No. A very similar story. He gets lost at sea. I think that's how Castaway works too. Totally different. Life of Pi. Castaway? The guy was on land okay, the entire well he, time. Wasn't there a boat situation? No plane. Swiss family. <laughs> plane? No, no, it's on a plane. This is getting worse and worse. I would just drop it, you know? Okay, but so this guy was on the on, on his boat for, for three weeks and change, you know? This is a... My Favorite Murder did an episode on this girl. Karen always does, like, I survived, kind of. She, mm-hmm. I feel like she just, like, is like, oh, shit, I have to film a podcast tomorrow. And mm-hmm. she picks, like, an I survived episode and does, like, it on that. And there was this girl that, like, her family, I think the family was, like, kind of wealthy because they had, like, rented or, like, chartered, like, this boat out in the middle of the ocean. And the, like, captain of this boat, like, turned on them. And I don't, there's a lot of reasons to this. We'll have to listen to the episode. It's really good. Mm -hmm. And he, like, killed her family. And he thought that she was dead. So he, like, abandoned ship or the ship kind of, like, went down. And she, like, was, like, living out at sea. Just this girl. And she just, like, washed up someday and, like, somebody found her. It's a crazy story. Oh, my gosh. We'll have to listen to it. It's pretty good. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm just going to go ahead and stay on the offensive. Just like um, Chihuahua owners are probably apt to, like, lie about the age of their dogs. You know who's probably apt to lie about how long they've been lost? Boaters. I'm just Well, thinking... I mean, I think, like, when they pick you up, they can tell how long you've been out there. Like, it's the same way of being lost in, like, the wilderness. Like, this Francois guy had, like... When they pulled him out of the ocean, they're like, he was really actually fine. He just, like, lost a little weight. Is any of this kind of coming together to you as something that probably just didn't actually happen? You know, it's like, ugh, wasn't a big deal. You know, my friends this wanted to kind of come get me, it. but I thought I'd hang picture. out. I'm going to show you this picture. This guy hmm. looks like he would, they just pulled him out of the ocean. He looks kind of disheveled. <laughs> actually, he kind of looks like he's just chilling. No, he just looks like he needs a shower, you know? <laughs> Look, okay, let's, let's move on to another story where someone's probably lying about something amazing. Well... <laughs> we we kind of talked about this earlier, but My Chemical Romance yes. <laughs> was formed after the tragedies of 9-11. Yes. And it's an amazing so fact. this is, you know, this is a whole tangent. This isn't news. This is old news, but we were just talking about this earlier, and I mm-hmm. feel like we need to just, like, lay it all out there. It's just amazing that, like, a national tragedy could, you know, inspire patriotism in people, and that patriotism could lead to just, like, eyeliner and, like, metal danglies hanging off of black jackets. Gerard Way, who is, I guess, the front man. I don't know My Chemical Romance that well. I, lo- I, got- I love them, but clearly I don't even know their most popular yeah, song. Yeah, guys, the lead singer's <laughs> name is Gerard. Okay. So he wrote the song Skylines and Turnstiles after he apparently saw the first plane crash in 9-11 from he was, like, on a ferry in the Hudson when he, like, saw that happen. Bit of a New Yorker. Yes, a bit of a New Yorker, but they're from Newark. Okay. Um, but either way, so he wrote Skylines and Turnstiles in the aftermath of 9-11. And he said, the world changed that day, and the next day we set out to change the world. 
So they formed My Chemical Romance, like, immediately. Like, 9-11, like, triggered. Because he said he texted or called the other band members. So he called Otter, who's a drummer, Ray, the guitarist, Mikey, the bassist, right after he wrote that Skylines and Turnstiles song. And then they just formed My Chemical Romance, like, from 9-11. So, so he saw 9-11 happen, and then he just calls up his buddies, like, like guys, <gasps> I've got an idea. I do want to circle back and go back to your slide against the people of Newark. <laughs> It was a bit of a New Yorker. No, he was from Newark. That's just like saying like, uh, oh, like, uh, like, oh, I'm from Chicago. <laughs> Excuse me. You're from Highland Park. Okay, we did that though. <laughs> like, don't, don't say, like, don't act like you're from the city and like, you're not. You're not? You're not. I mean, I'm from a sound of like 60,000 people. So like, I'm so, not claiming to be from anywhere. So we've called out. I have out, more cows than people in my town. <laughs> so we've called out Chihuahua owners. Go fuck yourself. We've called out boaters. Go fuck, fuck yourself. yourself. And people from Newark. Go fuck yourself. Honestly, just people. In, I've called. Well, we used to call Renee out for all this. Shout out Renee. That she didn't really do this, but like she would always know people that would be like, "I'm from Chicago," and she's like, "I went to school with you. Like we're from like an hour outside of Chicago." Renee, you're getting called out too. <laughs> you too, Renee. Renee, you are you are notice number four. Okay. Last strike. We're gonna pull this whole My Chemical Romance thing though through. Bring it back. So. My Chemical Romance said that, whatever, they started after 9-11, yeah. and this all came from a NME article that marked 20 years since 9-11, and they did, like, a whole write-up on My Chemical Romance and 9-11. It's kind of a crazy article. It's by Me. Charlotte Kroll. Then, yeah. we're gonna go into the crazy thing about oh. how the emo scene of My Chemical Romance was linked to Twilight, even though Gerard, the, the front man, once stated on Twitter that he was against a relationship between a 17-year-old girl and an immortal. Huh. But so they kind of always link those together. He was against that? Or he, wildly enforced? He was against it. Okay. And like, I guess at one point, they were like kind of linking like some of their songs to Twilight and he was like, that's like a money grab. Like, I mean, that's not us. It's very like passionate, like hot topic music though well i think just that whole like early 2000s whatever is like the same just like ugh. god those were the days those <sighs> it was fun in, in, in the twilight of the jenko jeans mm. <gasps> seeing no. twilight in like theaters was mm. spicy mm, mm, mm. i didn't really see really that. hormones are flowing I've never Robert seen Pattinson. any of those movies. Amanda sent me a tweet today and Robert Pattinson was like rocking a skirt at like one of the most like whatever recent carpets he was on. Really? The man can wear a freaking skirt. I, you know, I mean, he's, you know, he's gotten to, he's got nice legs. Either way, so then we're really just going on a tangent here. My Chemical Romance apparently mm -hmm. inspired Twilight, which apparently, well, not apparently, this is true. So Fifty Shades of Grey was originally written as Twilight fan fiction and the author of Fifty Shades of Grey originally posted an on fanfiction.net and James, the author, whatever, originally had to take it down. Right. And then and, she and was like, well, written. fuck you. I'll just like self-publish it. Right. And it turned into Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, I don't know. Heard she skipped the editing process too. To this day, there's typos in that thing. And that book was like, it was a bestseller. Like, I think it was definitely like a bestseller. I mean, it just- At like some point. I think it just shows you that the American people will look past poor grammar- just frankly, uncreative plot elements and typos if there's just some steamy, kinky sex in there. Yeah, know? I mean, people are horny, and like, I think we just need to like be okay with that. Yeah. Like, that's fine. So you know who's not getting called out today? The writer of Fifty Shades of Grey. Well, she can kind of get called out. Well, a lot of people like are mad at her. <laughs> nope, because... you're not safe, actually. <laughs> well, I actually don't. I mean, this is probably my bad too. I don't really. Some people are like really mad at her because hmm. I guess like. 
in the BDSM community, they're like, she's, like, a poser of BDSM, which, like, I guess she's, like, putting out kind of vanilla, like, BDSM, but, like, you're writing a book. Like, you yeah. can't just, like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what you want to say. I mean, but... I mean, like, it's, like, the bridge... It's, like, half erotica because there was erotica, and, like, she was, like, I'm going to make some money, so I'm going to make this into a real book, and she right. did that. She got her bag, and she's, like, doing her thing. And in the midst of that, like, her command of the English language was kind of, like, mediocre best anyway. So it's, like, it's not like she could really get to those heights, you know? I mean, she was just trying to write Twilight fanfiction yeah, and they, apparently got taken down. And so. she did a good job, you know? I don't, yeah, I don't know. Well, when we were talking about the... I'm trying to find this now. Because remember... Okay, Ooh. so we talked about this earlier. Yeah. That Chris Pine is allegedly connected to... An erotic, a really like popular erotica writer. I was waiting for Chris Pine to enter the you were, scene. You were waiting for him to come Chris back. Chris Pine's always waiting in the wings. He he really is. So yeah. people think that Chris Pine is doubling as Chuck Tingle, which is apparently a really popular erotica writer, which okay. I kind of want to read. Do you have you ever read erotica? Excuse me. Do you have you ever read erotica? I read Calvin and Hobbes growing up. So apparently there was a person who explained that a student she taught erotica writing class while attending Berkeley. And that was the same year that, like, Pine, Chris Pine was there. Sea Pine? Sea Pine, yeah. Okay. And he was apparently, quote, a fantastic writer and was never creepy, even though we were constantly discussing sex. You know what? And he was always on Star Trek. So you'd think that, like, if he if he was writing porn, especially at that time period, you know, maybe he was uh, putting a bit of a sci-fi spin on it. Some space probes well, going up some booty holes, you know? Star Trek is kinky. Yeah. So apparently some of Chris Tingle's titles were My Billionaire Triceratops Craves Gay Ass, Pounded by President Bigfoot, and Taken by the Gay Unicorn Biker. And the and the Berkeley professor, funded by taxpayer money, said that this was all very eloquent stuff. She wasn't a professor. I think it was like another student le- leading this erotica group. Call out number five, the Berkeley erotica scene, <laughs> because that sounds like trash. I'm actually kind of want to read some of this. I'm going to buy some. No, I'm going to put it. it on our coffee table. Right? On the, you know, yeah, yeah. On one on the coffee table and then a duplicate print on the toilet. Well, I guess that was the last news slash pop culture like Reddit holes I've gotten into lately. I really, I really enjoyed enjoyed all this. Frankly, like this is just my like my little weekly dose of like C-SPAN. Frankly, you know. Well, it was kind of fun because when I was doing this by myself, or like when I do this, I guess by myself, uh-huh. it's more of like I look up true crime news, and right. it was like all really depressing stuff. And now we're just talking about nonsense. Now you're just making shit up about SpongeBob. Before I love we it. get into the the real stuff, <laughs> hit me with it. So today, hit me. I'm going to tell you the story of Ruth Finley and the poet. Ruth Finley and the poet? Yes. Ooh, I don't think you've ever heard This sounds like a prog rock band. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you've heard about this before. I have and not. And I heard about this pretty, like, not early. It's, this happened a while ago, so it's okay. not early. It's not new news. But the first time I heard about this was on My Favorite Murder. And then I'll cite sources later. But okay. I've listened to and, like, read a lot about it. And okay. it's kind of wild. I'm in. It's I'm, exciting. I'm, 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 I'm buckled so, in. I'm angry. I'm ready for call number seven. You're fired up. I can, oh, call number seven. Okay, so Ruth Finley was watching TV in her home, decompressing after a long day because her husband, Ed, had collapsed while walking or working on the patio and was taken to the hospital and he was awaiting a diagnosis. So Ruth, chilling in her house at night. She was just enjoying a a nice break because her husband finally Because her husband was in the hospital. (laughs) So she was at home alone for the first time in 30 years since marrying her husband, Ed. And while she was walking upstairs from watching TV, the phone rang. 
Oh. And she thought it was the hospital since no one really usually called like that late at night and her husband was there. Yeah. But when she answered the phone, an unfamiliar male voice asked, is this Ruth Smock from Fort Scott, Kansas? And Ruth was confused because Smock was her maiden name. Her name now is Finley. Okay. And she said yes. And he began asking her questions about her past without identifying himself. Then eventually he said, I know all about that night of which Ruth knew the night he was alluding to immediately. And he started to read from an article from October 15th, 1946 from the Fort Scott Tribune, which was titled, Branded on Both Thighs by a Hot Flatiron, Apparently by a Sex Maniac, Ruth Smock, 16 years old Fort Scott High School girl, was resting today at a home for parents following an attack upon her early last night. Which is a long title. Tantalizing. This is wild. Yeah. The man on the phone asked her if she still wore her brand, which is terrifying. Wait, her brand? Her brand. Because the the... article, like, said, like, she was branded on both thighs. Right, okay. I I I thought thought he was talking, like, oh, maybe. No. (laughs) Okay, continue. I'm sorry. Oh, yes. The gap. (laughs) Okay, No. Um, So, the man on the phone, the unfamiliar man, asked her for money to keep quiet about the story, and Ruth was obviously, like, terrified and shook up, so she hung up the call. Ed returned a few days later, Wait, so why would she not want it getting out, especially if this is, like, an article that's, like, I think she was, like, embarrassed. So, this was, this took place in June of 1997, and this Mm -hmm. article was from 1946, so it was... Oh, it's been a while. She was much younger, yeah. So, this article was old, like, 30-some years old. Okay. And I think she was just, like shook because this guy like called and just started reciting an article about a traumatic thing that had happened I'm just gonna to start her. paying people to like call my friends and like bring up embarrassing stuff until they pay him money this is pretty great <laughs> remember you got drunk and peed on the wi-fi router yeah but i said remember that time you pooped in your dorm room? that'd be 50 dollars <laughs> asshole <laughs> you know? well this was a lot more scary and this is a little more serious i see you know <laughs> so ed returned a few days later from the hospital and it turned out that he had just injured his shoulder and everything was fine because they were worried he had like a heart attack. She did not mention this call to Ed. She just kind of kept it on the DL. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. They thought he had a heart attack. Well, because he got like, like some shoulder. arm pain, oh. you know? And, like, so he like, had like, they've never had a heart attack. And I come back, it's like, ah, scraped knee. <laughs> <laughs> Stubbed my toe again, damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah it really, really got me this time, though. No. Okay, yeah. so he comes so back. Ed's okay. back, but okay. Ruth didn't tell Ed about the mysterious phone call. Okay, okay. So let's. Flip it and reverse it. Oh! So, Ruth Finley was born Ruth Smock in Richard, Missouri, to a farmer in a town about, like, 100 people. Okay. And she was 15 when she moved to Fort Scott, Kansas, where she attended high school. And at 16... Been there. She, really? High school. I think I'm Fort Scott. <laughs> and at 16, she began working part-time at the phone company and lived in, like, a boarding house. On October of 1946, Ruth returned home from being out and about, and she heard her screen door open while she was in her house. Okay. And she felt someone grab her from behind and then made her clap pass out because she like, they, like, held chloroform to her mouth. Ah. And she kind of, like, vaguely remembered this dude as being, like, kind of, like, a larger, like, white male, okay. which is everybody. So she awoke and she found that she had been badly burned on both thighs and had cuts on her arms and legs. And she had like kind of a foggy memory of a man heating like a flat iron over the stove. And she ended up going to the hospital and she had no like signs of like sexual assault, but she was like pretty shaken up. So he just branded her with this flat iron. Yes. And then the man disappeared into the night? Yes. Because she woke up and he was not there. Honestly, this guy seems like he broke in, tried to make breakfast, wanted her help, tried to give her the pan. Pan goes in her lap, does not work. And the guy's like, frankly, I'm just going to pull the plug on this whole thing. You know, I thought this was a Denny's. I'm out. 
No, I'm sure he was quite nefarious, but, you know, <laughs> it just seems odd. Ruth, at this time of the phone call, was a 48-year-old mother, and she had two sons, two grown sons, who lived elsewhere, so she just lived with her husband, Ed. And she worked at the Southwestern Bell Telephone Company in Wichita, Kansas, and she'd been married to Ed Finley, who was 49 Wichita. at the time, since 1950. I think it's a pretty popular place. No, Wichita is where the famous Kellogg Cereal Company is headquartered. Oh, I could die for some Frosted Flakes right now. Ah, pretty good. So... A few weeks later, after the phone call, Ruth received a letter at work, and so she ripped it up and threw it away because she was just like, what the fuck is this? And she repeatedly received phone calls from this man for months, but Ruth would just like hang up immediately when he'd call her. This is like kind of like that Watcher thing you did an episode about. It is kind of creepy, yeah. 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 You know, go listen to the episode, you know. Um, I did! I don't think you did. I did! (laughs) So, Ed was also receiving calls from an unknown number in a strange caller at home, but when he would answer the phone, there would just be no one on the other end and they would just hang up. So oh. they were both receiving calls. Ruth at work, Ed would answer them at home. And okay. when Ed would answer, the like person on the line wouldn't say anything. Okay. Yeah. And so about this time, it was August, Ruth was window shopping in downtown Wichita, Kansas. Okay. Bumping, probably. Yeah. Um, while waiting for her husband, Ed, to finish working as an accountant to drive her home. And she did this every day. And this she would sounds just, like, like shop to pass time. Exciting. I like this. This yeah. sounds like fun life. No, honestly. yeah. Um, and while she was walking around, a man began walking next to her, like matching her stride. And she looked up at him and he addressed her directly. She thought that he was like confused because she was confused that like he knew her name. Yeah. And he began with, You've done such a good job working this week. You work for the telephone company, don't you? And continued to like talk to her about her job. Ruth told the man, I'm waiting for my husband, to which he replied, Oh, like you're still married. And some articles say that then he said, I like your face. I'll see you again. You can count on that. Some people's fantasies are other people's nightmares. Ooh. No, that that's right out of like an Alfred Hitch- yeah, Hitchcock. That's, creepy. Yeah, that's good. Creepy. That's good. And so this seems like a little far-fetched, but like, and I can't find any articles where like Ruth directly quotes that he said this, I mean, but like either way it's out there. She didn't have a chihuahua. She's probably telling the truth. You're right. So Ruth told Ed about this. Unlike the phone thing, Ruth told Ed. And Ed just was kind of like, oh, it's probably some guy trying to like hit on you. And yeah. just kind of like... Bit of a kook. Passed it off. If that's all you had, just a bit of a kook. Yeah. Yeah. So now that she was approached by the man, she was a little more worried. Then, soon after that, the calls like to the house in the office ended around October of 1977. Okay. And she didn't see that man for about a year. Until July of 1978. She was again, during her lunch, kind of walking around and standing by a storefront in downtown Wichita. And a man grabbed her by the wrist and he was oh. very angry. He said, Ruth, you stupid bitch. He like kind of talked to her and kind of grabbed her and Ruth kind of tussled away. Mm-hmm. And she ran into a nearby department store, a Macy's. Nice. Don't you miss the old department stores? I really do. Because you could always, because you oh. know, about what she could have done, she could have run in there and then she could have dove right into one of those little clothing racks. The, I used to always hide. The circular ones? The circular ones. I would hide in those as a kid yep. all the time. Those are good ones. Uh-huh. She called Ed from like a payphone in the Macy's and told him to pick him up. When Ed came and picked her up, she spilled the whole truth, told about the call when she was not home and everything, or mm-hmm. the call when he was in the hospital. And Ed insisted that they call the police, but Ruth just, like, wanted to go home and not think about it. But Ed still called, made a report, but, like, nothing really happened after that. So then, flash forward to November of 1978, Ruth received a two-page letter and showed this letter to Ed. This letter was obviously from this guy that's been, like, stalking her. Yeah. And they brought the letter to the police. Did he sign the letter with, like, a moniker or a or a, a name? It doesn't say. What's that? It doesn't say. Okay. I didn't write it down. Oh, but his name was, like, Pee Wee Herman. 
<laughs> so they brought the letters to the police. What? <laughs> wait, 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 quick pause. I'm so sorry. Do you think Pee Wee Herman? I don't know who was, Pee Wee Herman is. You were just getting on me about thinking all oh, French people are named were Pierre. Do you think Pee Wee Herman was French? Who is Pee Wee Herman? Pee Wee Herman had like a lovely kids' TV show, but then that our, our actor got arrested for watching like publicly masturbating in a theater in Florida. Classic. Either way, they were brought to talk to a detective of the major crimes decision and Detective Lieutenant Bernie Dravowski and other officers, including a man named Richard Zortman, which is a crazy name. I like that. Were kind of brought into the room. And at this time, if your true crime brain really remembers, BTK was on the prowl in Wichita at this time, too. Oh. So they were worried that when they came in and these people were like, I'm getting letters from this freak. They were like, oh, fuck, it's BTK. BTK, bind, torture, kindergarten. (laughs) Oh. Four years previously, in 1974, the Otero family of four were strangled to death in their home. And an anonymous tip then led to the police to a letter in a public library about, that was from BTK. Mm -hmm. In December of 1977, Nancy Fox was strangled by BTK. And then KAKE Television received a note from BTK. Cake, cake TV? I think cake. Oh. That's, and then like a third note was received. So BTK was, long story short, writing some notes. Oh, so you think BTK was writing these letters to her? This is what the police thought at the time. Interesting. Because BTK was a known little attention whore. So they were like, oh, he's writing these notes to Ruth. Hmm. So Ruth and Ed were interviewed in the case because they thought it was worried it was BTK. But then after hearing all the stuff, the officers didn't really think it was BTK, but they told them to like stay in contact with us. And we obviously want to hear about this because yeah. you got something going on. You got a problem. And a week later, another letter arrived demanding Ruth to leave money under the seat of her car. And there's a lot of like weird misspellings and pronunciations in this. And Ruth is called like a bitch and dumb spelled D-U-M lots of times. Hmm. And he leaves her a poem threatening to tell everyone about her brand. And he knows that Ruth had talked to the police. And it was pretty much just like a nonsense letter. So this ended up being the author of Twilight. Is that where we're going? Yes. Eventually Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Fifty Shades yeah. of Grey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, perfect. Okay. So the letters and calls kind of continue through this week. And it's just like, they're just getting like berated by these like letters and calls. Like they're like constant. Okay. Like it seems... Like, I don't know if this would happen today. Like, I think since this was in, like, the 70s, well, I, think, I, I think feel phone like police tracking. work was a lot more like, ah, you're being a baby. Phone tracking is a lot more sophisticated yeah, nowadays. They, they don't can, have to, like... I mean, look at, like, the Idaho, like, murders case. Like, half of that affidavit was them tracking Brian or whatever. Yeah. Innocent to prove him guilty. If you, watch, um, if you watch uh, the movie, like, Black Christmas, a big plot point of that is she has to keep the guy in the line for long enough and then yeah. track the call. Yeah. And you're watching this guy. This guy's running through this big hall of, like, these actual, like, manual little operator sort of switches looking for it. He's like scrambling around, like looking, you know, looking for it. And it takes like, a, you know, they got to keep in line for like a half hour or something like that. So, I mean. Half an hour? That seems a little long. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was, it was just kind of like a, you know, mechanical process back in the day. And half, none of these are cell phones. It's all like landlines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which one makes it easier, you think? Anyway, so November 21st of 1978, Ruth leaves for lunch from the telephone company and is shopping around downtown in Wichita. And later that night, she does not return. And her boss called her sister when she didn't come back from lunch. She called Jean. Mm-hmm. And then Jean, her sister, called Ed. And Ed reports 
to the police that his wife is missing and tells, like, Jean, your sister, all about, like, the calls and letters that are happening because he's worried. Right. And Ed gets a phone call at home from a man saying that he's with his wife, and Ed immediately thinks, like, oh, this is the psycho that's been calling us. Yeah. And, but it's actually a liquor store owner or worker who Ruth is with, and he's just like, I have your wife here. Like, she told me to call you. So Ed rushes to the liquor store, but Ruth has already been taken by the police to the police station. So, at the police station... Ruth tells the police that she went, like, downtown when an older model Chevy pulled up next to her and the man who she'd seen twice prior in, like, the downtown area Mm -hmm. of Wichita demanded that she get in the car and threw her in the backseat. The man climbed in, the one who she saw before, and then there was a man driving who she'd never seen before, and the man kind of was addressed as Buddy by the guy that she knew, Mm quote-unquote knew, and they'd been passing, like, a bottle, which she presumed was alcohol, back and forth, and they drove Ruth around for around four hours. The car was filled with junk and just, like, stuff you'd see on a farm, I guess, and she noticed that her door handle in the back was, like, broken off so that she couldn't get out. And they demanded for her purse, and she kind of, like, relinquished it to them. When he saw that she had Lieutenant Jarowski's business card in, like, her wallet, he hit Ruth with a chunk of concrete because he was mad. Where where did he withdraw a chunk of concrete from? Apparently his car was full of junk. It was a dirty car. Just just wielded it while driving? I I mean, you don't have just a emergency attack chunk of concrete in your car it sounds like she's dealing like a like a like an orangutan or something like that okay all right but anyway so eventually ruth is like riding around with them and is like i have to figure out a way to get out of here so she tells her and she just got hit by a chunk of concrete yes she eventually tells her kidnappers that she has to pee and they pull over into a park and since it's dark and cold they take ruth's shoes and sweater so she doesn't run away they think like hey If I take your sweater and your shoes, you won't run away because you'll be cold. So they take her sweater, but Ruth still runs away and hides behind a bunch of, like, brush. And then she eventually runs up a hill and, like, looks behind her. And she doesn't see, like, the car or the dude chasing her. So that's when she, like, runs to the liquor store. So much of this is strange. That feels awfully easy that she got away. Yeah, she just ran. She just kind of, like... just, like, apparently left. This is odd. Yeah, so Ruth still has her purse... But when she gets to the police station, she knows that the two dudes had taken her paycheck, savings bonds, and, like, a letterhead stationery from the phone company that she works for. Mm -hmm. So Detective Zorman returns to the park to find her sweater and shoes and, like, her footprints all over. But he doesn't really find any other evidence. She gives a description of the car, but Zorman and Jarofsky can't find any, like, plausible suspects in their sweep. Mm -hmm. And the police are given an assignment to watch Ruth while she drives downtown for lunch every day because that's where she's, like, encountered this dude all the time. Right. But they watch her for the next, like, five weeks, but they can't, like, watch her all the time. Mm-hmm. And they don't really see anything. Yeah. And they run surveillance, of, like I said, for five weeks and nothing really happens. So Detective George Anderson, along with Ruth and Ed, drive 155 miles to Fort Scott to dig up anything they can find about that past assault that I talked about before that happened when she was 16. Mm-hmm. And Anderson also goes back, like, a second time in a month, but they never really, like, caught any leads because, like, maybe it's this guy from right. like, Fort Scott, but they don't yep. really find anything. And it's, like, 30-whatever, 20, 30 years old. So over the winter, the police, the police and Ruth and Ed receive letters. This guy's writing letters like yeah. a little, like a little just, just whiz, like a little off. letter whiz. Yeah, yeah. Well, wait, a wait, florist. A letter whiz. <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> a florist even got an envelope with $5 and a note asking him to send a black flower to Ruth Finley. 
Jaworski received a letter accusing him of protecting a whore from death. Whoa. And Jaworski was kind of pissed because, like, him and Ruth and Ed had, like, gotten kind of close. Because they'd mm-hmm. been, like, with surveillance with them all the time. Yeah. They were, like, kind of friends now. Um, And then at, in March, K-A-R-D, television card. Card. Television card. Game card just reported the news. <laughs> television station got a call from a man claiming to be buddy so the driver in the abduction oh. saying they could give him the name of the other man um and then they called like a second radio station or television station said that he would like call the next day and like the police kind of tried to set up a trace because this guy right. contacted the media which is yeah. also very kind of btk mm-hmm. also kind of zodiac yeah but never really worked out so in april of 1979 btk broke into anna williams home where when she was not there and sent a poem and item stolen from the Anna Williams home to a TV station. And so police were kind of back on this BTK case. Mm-hmm. And, like, this kind of is, like, kind of similar to, like, Ruth's right. thing, where there's, like, poems and media contact and whatever. Were, the, were the linguistics of the BTK letters ever they did, examined like, against them, this? Yeah. But I, that's, I think, why the police kind of ruled out the first time. They're like, I don't think this is the same guy. Right. Because, like... I said before, like, the Ruth letter had, like, a lot of weird, like, spelling errors and stuff. Ruth wasn't really, like, too concerned about, like, it being BTK. Because a lot of her friends and family were like, this BTK guy is coming after you. But, like, Ruth was like, I don't really think it's him. Like, it doesn't seem like it's him. And so Ruth was kind of known to not really get worried and not get, like, caught up in her emotions. Because, like, her maiden family, the Smock family, didn't ask for help. So, Ed, that's, <laughs> the Smock that's, family. Yeah, I was like, the what Smocks, a, apparently. What a, yeah. We're a sturdy draw, people. Yeah. So, Ed reached out to the police for them to watch out for Ruth. The police were like, I can't always be there. So, they, like, deputized Ed. So, they instead taught Ed to, like, how to clear his home, like, whenever they'd get back to the house. They taught Ed how to shoot a gun um, from, like, a police stance. How? Like, we're like going and take a little bit of a squat, like a <laughs> like point squat and well, shoot. Don't just like do it like a like a nineteen twenties like mobster, like pew pew pew. You know, you gotta squat, like yeah, get, get gotta, down into the seat of those pants. You if know, if you eat too much Taco Bell, you have to shit your pants a little. Yeah, that'll say but, okay. And they like taught him to just like how to incapacitate like a target, and Ed was kind by of by shooting it. All. Yes, by shooting it. <laughs> <laughs> and Ed was kind of excited. He was like taking this responsibility seriously, and he would hide in his backyard. I mean, watching. This man was just given a license to kill. This they is not like, this is like James Bond. Now. Yeah, now. yeah. So yeah, they like he, Ed would sit in his backyard with his gun and like watch the house because like the pole was obviously like around yeah the letters continued after the calls stopped after they switched like an so they switched their home phone to like an unlisted number so they switched their phone number smart and they stopped but the letters still kind of were coming Mm -hmm. so ruth went to the mail um went out to the mall once like the threats kind of slowed in july of 1979 so like the call was in june of 1977 so this Mm -hmm. is like two years yeah this has been happening. Ruth went to the mall once the threat slowed like two years later. She was grabbed at the mall while she was getting back to her car by the man that she identified had kidnapped her a year earlier. So the man kind of grabbed her while she was getting in her car and she pushed the man and jumped into the driver's seat of her car. And the man then continued to stab her three times in the back. Whoa. And so she like slammed the door shut to like get the man out of there. And began to drive away, and she was attempting to, like, roll up her window, but the man was, like, grabbing her window. So she rolled the window up, and he had gloves on, so, like, the glove got pinched in the window, 
and his glove was like caught in her like rolled up window. She called just like in Christmas in the Cranks. <laughs> I don't know. If I with, with, with with Tim Allen. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so she called Lieutenant Bernie Jarowski, who was a seasoned detective of 34 years, and informed the officer who had like answered. So like she called Jarowski, and he mm-hmm. didn't. He wasn't there. Somebody else answered. So she informed the person that answered that she'd been stabbed, but she was at a gas station at a payphone because she'd like escaped, and she told the officer that she could drive home instead of staying put. Like she was like, I'll drive home. Like come get me at home. So the officer then called Ed, her husband, and told her, like, hey, your wife, who has been stabbed, is about to be there. Mm. Like, take her to the hospital when she gets there. And at the same time, like, Ed saw her, like, swerving down the street. Mm. When she pulled up, she had, like, a knife, like, stuck out of her side. Yeah. Ed took her to the hospital, and she had three stab wounds and was taken into surgery. And one of the stab wounds had almost pierced her kidney. She became worried during her recovery that, like, this man was never going to stop until he, like, killed her. And so Ruth told the police that the kidnapper had thrown, like, a bag into the back seat. Mm-hmm. Like, when he was trying to grab her, like, he was yeah. trying to abduct her in her car. So he, like, kind of tossed a bag into her back seat. And when they recovered the bag from her back seat, it held, like, duct tape rope, a bottle of liquor, a newspaper clipping about the investigation. Yeah. And then they also recovered, like, the glove that was stuck in the window. But uh, they couldn't find any prints in it. I am floored that this wild scene from Christmas and the Cranks is totally unoriginal because there is a scene, Jamie Lee Curtis is trying to leave because her and Tim Allen have decided that they don't want to celebrate Christmas like normal with their Chicago neighbors, okay? Okay. And Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> Seems very, like, unsevere compared to this. No, 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 no. This, thing, this gets severe. Okay. Not, not as severe, but it gets severe. So Dan Aykroyd, you know, really wants them to, like, stay for the holidays and it's, just, and it's this whole rigmarole. But, you know, go see the movie Christmas and the Cranks. This is an official blog. It's fantastic. Anyway, <laughs> Dan Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd that. doesn't want to talk to Jamie Lee Curtis, though. Okay. And he is running the car she's trying to pull away she's rolling up the window he gets his hand stuck in there and she like and she blows it up and he like kind of like yells and like pulls pulls back and she sees this little glove kind of like fluttering in the uh yeah it's stuck is exactly in there. and she thought like she and she thought she had like caught his fingers but oh. it turns out she just caught the glove and yeah. i think they drew inspiration from um, a decades old you know uh true crime incident probably and you know what? Producers of Christmas with the Cranks with Tim Allen and Jamie Lee Curtis and Dan Aykroyd, you are call out number seven tonight. Woo! Call out number seven. So anyway, <laughs> please continue. So <laughs> where did this, I interrupt you? After yeah. the stabbing incident, the media kind of finally like caught wind of this story. They included like a police sketch in their story along with a warning that the suspect that was stalking Ruth was extremely dangerous. And Ed had a plan in place to put an ad in the newspaper addressing the poet, which, like, the newspaper dubbed him as the poet because he was writing poems all the time. But they weren't good. Um, No, they were bad. Okay. And they did this in September. So nothing really came of this, but because, like, Ed actually did put, like, a thing in the newspaper about, like, trying to get the poet to, like, reach out to him. And police followed Ruth into town in case the poet ever showed up again, but he, like, disappeared again. And Ed's insurance form, which he worked for, offered $3,000 reward leading to the arrest of Ruth's attacker. So, like, people were really worried about this. Yeah. So, on Christmas Eve, the It all comes back. <laughs> to Christmas. Christmas with um, the cranks. The family's phone line was cut while eating Christmas dinner, and a letter was stuck in their front door. Ruth was meeting with Dr. Shrag, Shrog, to go under hypnosis to get more details about the attack to kind of, like, mm-hmm. recover some more memories. Yeah. And she gave him a more like detailed description of the poet the dude she, she always had to talk to her said that there was a bridge over a river but like didn't know the meaning of it so then we're up into 1980 
and Jarofsky moved from the case due to like a promotion and Captain Mike Hill kind of took over and kind of started re-examining the case and he found out that Jarofsky, the previous detective, and his wife had gotten very close to the Finleys and they frequently socialized and they said that they both had dry senses of humor which meshed with each other. This new detective or Captain Mike Hill kind of thought maybe Ruth was pulling a hoax on them. Because Detective Jarofsky has gotten so close to them, like maybe he didn't see this. So, but then he kind of like followed up on this and the hospital said that the stab wounds would have been like impossible to inflict on yourself. Unless you go into a Williamson Sonoma and just just kind of back into one of like the racks really fast, you know? That's a good point. So he believed that Jarofsky got too close to the investigation and that the Finleys and like he was too close to them and that they were sharing too much information with them. So Detective Hill quickly like kind of stopped sharing information with the Finleys, like stopped being so transparent because I guess this like previous detective was telling them like absolutely everything. Right, he was like staying over and for dinner. So this guy, yeah. Him and the wife are getting a little close if little you know freaky. what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so Ed quickly got like frustrated and complained to the chief of police, Richard Lemonian, about the lack of information, and Lemonian said he wanted to stay out of the case and did not have jurisdiction over what his detectives, like, shared with the family. Mm-hmm. And a detect- the new detective, Detective Hill, quickly received a letter from the poet saying, there was a captain who had an asshole for a heart, and kind of, like, noting the change in, like, leadership of the case. Mm-hmm. Letters from the poet kind of increased, and Detective Hill received letters. The Finley's phone line was cut again. Like, it was just, like, nonstop. Like, there's so many incidents of this. And Detective Hill placed a security camera in the Finley's backyard, disguised as a birdhouse. Super sneaky. Hmm. And it had, like, was watched constantly in eight-hour shifts. But it wasn't, like, now. Somebody, like, was literally posted up in their, like, kitchen at all times. Just watching watching TV. Watching feed. Ruth would always, like, cook and bake them treats for the officers during this time. Sounds like a pretty sweet gig. Yeah, exactly. You're You're getting baked cookies all day. You're just crushing bush light, eating cookies, and watching TV. exactly. Watching a backyard, looking at some squirrels. Yeah. So Ruth received a call that there was a package left to her while she was at work on January 25th of 1980. Okay. And Detective Richard Vizortman picked up the package, and there was a 12-inch butcher knife wrapped in a red bandana inside this package that was delivered to her work. So once they kind of, like, evaluated this, 50 letters were delivered from the end of 1979 to May of 1980. These included one to the DMV saying that Ruth's license should be suspended and revoked, one to the bank requesting that money be transferred out of her account, to a locksmith saying that the Finleys needed a new lock on their front door, one to a construction company requesting that dirt be dumped in the Finleys' driveway, a letter to the health department saying that Ruth had a venereal disease, a letter to the utility company requesting that their service be shut off. And they were just like, there was letters going all over the place. Like this man was out here just writing letters eight hours a day, like full-time job. Dr. Murray Mirion, who worked on the Son of Sam case, created a profile for this letter writer, the poet. He said that the man was severely psychotic, schizophrenic, and a pathologically paranoid and a loner, believing that he was being persecuted. The FBI even used some handwriting expert to rule out Ed from the case because they thought maybe this is Ed. Mm -hmm. But they ruled him out with handwriting. And the Kansas Bureau of Investigation tried to extract a blood type from the saliva that was like on the envelopes from licking it, but Mm -hmm. they didn't really have any luck with that. So December 21st of 1980, the Christmas wreath on the Finley's house was set on fire and the front window cracked because of this. 
And the hateful letters are still just like, keep coming. This guy is so active. How is no one catching he this guy? He literally has a full-time job. Of this guy is just an people. absolute spirit of the night. I'm kind yeah. of impressed at this point. You know? <laughs> so on February of 1981, um, there's a rock found in like a red bandana, which like a red bandana was what the butcher knife was wrapped in. So it's kind of like his little signature okay, thing. Okay, okay. And there's just so, so he many was also, like... So they're kind of, do, might, might be doing with the bloods actually. Maybe. So lots of, there's just so many dead ends and like the police were like, what the mm-hmm. hell is going on? There was a letter at one point that was traced back to a man in Oklahoma, and this was, like, the first letter that they noticed had been, like, postmarked outside of Wichita. Mm-hmm. This man in, in Oklahoma had a psych profile that matched that of the poet, but he had been, like, fired off his job months earlier. But, like, when they lined him up, Ruth didn't recognize him, and he had an alibi for the kidnapping. Because he so, was like, Timothy McVeigh, and he was busy with the Oklahoma City bombings that maybe. day. Okay. But, like, <laughs> at this point, this was, like, their case was super publicized. Yeah. So, like, people were, like... I was like doing like what the zodiac were they like right kind of like pretended to be the perp you know right right right, right yeah yeah copycat um, killers copycat yeah. yes that's yes. what that's what i was looking for uh-huh. copycats so the poet continued he left an ice pick around the finley's property left a bottle of urine on the finley's porch well, that one's then a funny. bag of dog poop they tossed molotov cocktails what are people doing in our home he's right? jumping between like he's between like yeah. very threatening things and kind of hilarious kind of funny kind of funny pranks yeah um he left broken glass on their steps a broken lock and sliced garden hose which is just like a nuisance sliced garden hose yeah like yeah, it's just like what the hell yeah these are hot dogs on a porch and these included firecrackers cigars hair and matches in like trash he threw in their mailbox like he was just being a troll well, this guy's this guy's just decided yeah. he's their moriarty yeah. you know just just, just their absolute <laughs> nemesis so, in September of 1981, the poet sent letters to the Wichita police. So, September of 1981, this all started in June of 1977. Mm-hmm. So, this is years going on. Yeah. Chief Poli- Police Lemonian had stayed out of the investigation thus far, mm-hmm. but there was, like, a letter sent to the police office threatening his wife after the poet was done with Ruth. She was like, once I'm done with Ruth, I'm coming after your wife. The chief of police was like, that's it. Like, well, fuck not- aside. I wouldn't worry about it. He's never be done with her. He's been, doing this, he's been doing this every day yeah. for like eight years. years. What, what makes you think he's ever going to finish well, this? Well, this Lemonian guy apparently was very protective. Lemonian. Lemonian. That's a that's a nice last name. That actually. is nice. Yeah. Um. So he spent the weekend going through. There was like fourteen to fifteen like binders of information at this point mm-hmm. from this case, and he went through them all, and he came back, and was like, "I figured this out." So on Tuesday, September eighth, he called a meeting with sixteen officers connected to the case over the past four years which included, like, the Jarofsky, Zortman, and Hill people, and he told that he thinks the poet was Ruth yeah, the whole time. I buy that. So this was his case that he put up against them. So the Finleys live at the end of a Wait, quiet... Wait, pause. Dead- I actually don't buy that. I, it's, I find it wildly surprising. That's, okay. what, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Please continue. Okay. So the Finleys <laughs> live on the end of a quiet dead-end street, East Indianapolis Street. No one ever saw anyone, like, coming and going when they left letters, items, or, like, vandalizing. Oh, yeah. And there was no footprints ever found in their yeah. yard, even though he was apparently all over the place. Right. Um, no witnesses saw the poet where Ruth saw him, either if that was, like, downtown, at the mall, at her work, or in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And she called the central investigator's office instead of the emergency services when she was stabbed. So she, like, called the police first instead of calling, like, 911 and be like, Because hey, she didn't stabbed. want help. She wanted to report, like, the story, basically, you know? So, yeah. and then she called from the gas station and then drove home with a knife stabbed in her. Like, I would just call the police. Allegedly like, stabbed in her this Yes. Point, yeah. So, and then after the camera was placed in the Finley's backyard, the harassment at the home stopped. 
And then after the police, after, like, the phone trace was put on, the calls stopped. And only the Finleys and the police knew about these things. Like, they're, only the Finleys and the police knew that there was a camera in their backyard and that their phone was, like, being traced. Mm-hmm. And no letters were delivered to the home when they were out of town. So, like, at one point, or, like, at a couple points in this, the Finleys, like, went on vacation. Like, they went somewhere. And, like, during that time, nothing happened. Right. Did the poet, like, know they were going to be gone? Or, like, did Ruth just was like, oh, I'm on the beach in Cabo. Like, I'm not going to write. I was say, she's just getting I'm not going to, like, put dog doo-doo on my porch. That's right. You're in Cabo. Yeah. yeah. Okay. When Detective Hill took over the case, he got, like, a letter addressing to him. And this was not, like, a publicly announced thing that, like, Detective Hill is taking over the poet case. Because only she knew. Yeah. Okay. She knew that there was a change of hands. Mm-hmm. And only one set of footprints was found in the park when the abduction happened. Like, they found her sweater and stuff, but they only found Ruth's footprints and right. no one else's. The chief doubted the doctor's opinion that Ruth couldn't inflict the wounds by herself. Like, that was really the only thing that, like, stopped that Detective Hill. But, like, he was like, we should get a second opinion on this. Yeah. So, a bunch of the police officers that worked on this were, like, not convinced that Ruth could do this because they were all, like very close to like Ruth. Yeah. They were like chilling out in her kitchen and she was baking them cookies and like right. hanging out. Lamoni and all ordered a 24 hour surveillance on the family for two weeks and the officers had to be confidential. They couldn't like even tell like their families about it. They're like, we're not telling anybody, especially not Ruth about this. And the chief didn't like know Ruth. Like he never really got close to her, but all the other officers were like hanging out in her kitchen all the time. So like they were kind of in disbelief that Ruth Ruth would do this, but Lamunian was like, she's wasting my time. Let's hunker down and walk yeah. her, okay? So one police vehicle, and they even used like a helicopter. Were stationed like when they just were, like, trying to catch yeah. this paunchy old housewife like yeah. throwing poop on her own porch. Yeah, so they were like waiting, and they watched like when they left and when they came back. So on September seventeenth, the Finleys went to the mall, and they were followed by their. Armada. Just out, uh, yeah. Yeah, police force. <laughs> and so Ruth dropped mail into the mailbox. The police saw this and the postal, they called the postal guy and he came after a few hours and Ruth's letters were like found to be on top. And there were five letters, two bills, one that was like from the Finleys to Martha Stewart, whatever, whoever. Oh. And then there was two letters that were addressed to other people, but were from the poets. And one was to Cake TV and mm-hmm. one was to Ruth. And so officers went to Ruth's office to do a search that weekend. They found a book of poetry, a piece of red bandana, like a carbon paper with the poet's handwriting and like a tablet of paper that the poet used. So I guess like... Dictionary. Yes. If you go. will. If you will. If you may. Chief Lemunian kept the surveillance going and the next weekend Ruth deposited more letters at the mall. The police blocked off the mailbox immediately like after she dropped letters off and like immediately like 30 minutes later because the, the first time like a few hours passed and they were like, that's kind of sketch. So like 30 minutes later... Postman came, they opened the box. There was three normal letters from the Finleys and then one letter from the poet to Ruth. So then the police told Ed, they're like, hey, come in. We know who the poet is on October 1st. They showed Ed pictures of Ruth mailing the letters and he was confused. Like, why are you showing me pictures of my wife? They said that Ruth had mailed five poet letters in the past two weeks and explained that there was other evidence that they found at her office and whatever. And Ed agreed to a polygraph to clear him and Ed let... Like, the police officers searched their home, even though they already had a warrant. Ed was like, yeah, go for it. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't freaking know what's going on anymore. Because Ed was, like, not involved. Like, they were kind of worried at first. They're like, oh, Ed's the primary suspect. But, like, Ed was like, I have no freaking clue what's going on. Well, because this all started when she was bored because he was in the hospital for his, like, bullshit heart attack. It was, you know, just a shoulder problem, you know? 
Well, Detective Zorofsky met Ruth after work one day and asked her to come look at mugshots, and they took her into an interview room instead of, Oh, this like, is such a good Chris Hansen, like, can you yeah, take a Yeah, they're seat? like, can you take a, come look at mugshots? And instead of, like, putting her in her normal, like, desk spot, they took her to an interview room. Hill read her rights and asked her to go through her poet encounters, like, for the millionth time, and she had to go through all the events, and she had to say that, like, she was the only one that was ever present when, like, the poet stuff was found from her. Mm-hmm. So, like, whenever she'd find this stuff, she'd, like, call it in and be like, hey, I found this. It was never like, oh, like, me and my friend Janice found this. Yeah. And Hill asked her if she ever wrote or mailed any of the poet letters, and Ruth said no. And Hill showed her the photos and explains, like, about the surveillance and how they kind of, like, caught her doing this. And Hill wanted. Sorry, this is like getting really long, but there's there's more. No, keep just 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 keep okay, on keep, keep on chugging. Keep yeah, running. keep on chugging. So my throat's like getting dry. <laughs> okay. So Hill was like, Ruth, why are you doing this? And Ruth just kept like shaking her head. And he asked Ruth, like, do you need help? And she finally like nodded. Denies ever making up the fourth sky. Wait, wait, she nodded. She's like, but I thought like, smocks help? don't ask for help. I was listening. I know you are. I know you're a good listener. <laughs> she denies making up the Fort Scott attack because they're like, is this part of it? And she was like, no, like that's true. And she said Ed had like no clue about any of this. She would not like give details about how she did certain things, like how she like threw poop on her porch. I guess. I She's know. pooped on a porch. Yeah, yeah pretty, come on. I can tell you how to do it right yeah, now. Yeah, but I can, you know, I can demonstrate for you. So Ruth just um, gotta grab each cheek and. Pull them wide and just <laughs> let that Taco Monday tumble. Ew. All right, let's, let's, let's bring it home. <laughs> if I ever told you how attractive you are. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. So Ruth took the bus from the mall to the park the day of the kidnapping. So, like, when she said that, like, they took her, like, from the mall and they, like, drove around forever and then took her to the whatever, the park. She Dang just it. took the bus. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. And Detective Hill believes that the man she described during hypnosis was, was the Ronald most Reagan. recent person she saw, <laughs> oh. which was the doctor. Her doctor that put her into the hypnosis because they like compared like what she <laughs> described and it was just like the, the, so the, the poli- therapist or whatever. So the police officer's like, and the worst crime of all is you're not even creative. <laughs> you can't even think of a face. Yeah. yeah, so Dr. Strong came in. And Ruth told him that she wanted to die, and Ruth thinks that, like, she was crazy, and he asked her if she felt like she was a different person when she did these things, and, like, Ruth didn't respond. So she was taken to St. Joseph's Medical Center in the psychiatric ward. The DA waited for 90 days after the psych testing was done before, like, processing the charges. And the police had calculated at this point that the investigation totaled $370,000, or, like, $1 million in today's money. And Dr. Andrew Pickens was assigned to her case. So she repressed strong emotions her whole life because, you know, smocks Because smocks don't ask for help. Yes. Yes. So her parents were loving and caring, and that's all she ever says. And her mother had it hard, like she always says that. Because smocks don't ask for help. Yes. Tests indicated that she was in a state of, like, massive repression during this whole thing. Apparently, she developed an alter ego of the poet that allowed her to express strong emotions, such as, like, anger, guilt, trauma, and pain. He reported, the doctor um, reported to the judge, that she had, like, buried her feelings and that, like, her husband's medical crisis that first night when he, like, had a heart attack that yeah. she thought triggered her to, like, act out on her feelings. Mm-hmm. And she was aware of what she was doing, but she didn't really know why. So she, like, made herself the target. And lo, yeah. a smock finally asked for yeah. help. 
So she was diagnosed with atypical impulse disorder and dissociative and depressive features and it was recommended that she receive some like intense therapy a few times a week. After Dr. Pickens wrote this report, he like changed his mind and then eventually came out saying that Ruth was unaware of her actions. And he described her childhood, or like Ruth always described her childhood as perfect, saying that she was poor, but they had what they needed. And her mother was a very religious, and this is where it's going to get bad. So her mother was described as very religious and that her children would like always should bury their emotions and not cry because she didn't like when they cried. Well, because Smox had asked for help. Yes. (laughs) And she was dependent, Ruth was very dependent on her mother, even from like a young child. And her mother didn't like that because she was asking for help. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> this is like the one rule they've got written on the on the fridge is just don't ask do for help. Yeah. And so Ruth like was not supposed to be prideful, and they weren't supposed to seek attention. And if Ruth was like complimented, her mother would like find like a flaw in it. So they'd be like, "Oh, Ruth, I like your hair." And her mom would be like, "Your hair sucks." Her mom was seemed she like, sounds like the not prim- very nice lady. Yeah. Um. So her mother almost bled to death during Ruth's birth, oh. and apparently it was, like, very painful, and her mother reminded her of this and disliked her for this. She kind of sounds like the um, big, uh, brassy uh, principal from the classic movie Matilda. Remember? Yes. Big, heavy lady, you know? Big old sweatsuit. Would do the thing where she kind of, like, would throw at the kids, you know? You remember Matilda a lot more vividly than I do. I remember a lot of things extremely vividly. You, yeah, apparently, I guess. <laughs> like, so, with the cranks. <laughs> uh, so, Ruth does still claim that Fort Scott was real. Um, so, after the attack occurred, her family came to pick her up from the hospital, which was a burden, apparently, on her family to have to drive to Fort Scott. And they quickly discharged Ruth back to her apartment where the attack happened. And she became physically ill every time she entered the apartment. Her mother helped her find a new apartment, which is where she eventually met Ed. Her Mm. sweet, sweet husband, who didn't do anything wrong in this whole thing. Doesn't sound like it. So Dr. Pickens is sure something happened at Fort Scott, whether it was the attack or something else um, that caused her to do this, like, self-harm. So they still don't know to this day if the attack at Fort Scott was real. He suspected that something traumatic did happen there. Ruth stayed with Dr. Pickens for four years. The tricky thing was determining if she was, like, telling the doctor what was real or just, like, what he wanted to hear. Right. Because Ruth was pretty much described as, like, a people pleaser because, like, that's what she was raised to do. Like, just kind of be, like, a yes man on She's a smock. One of yes, exactly. One of her earliest memories was of a poem book, which was filled with cautionary tales to children, labeling like them as good or bad. Oh, and that's what kind of was like. Shel Silverstein. Like, yeah, exactly. He was scary looking. Shel Silverstein was a scary guy. Oh yeah, no, 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 he's spooky. But but he he had kind of like an Oscar Isaac je ne sais quoi to him. Continue. <laughs> Pickens was able to decipher her trauma through poetry, so he kind of, like, used this again was, like, Ruth write poetry. Through poetry, this is where they discovered the root of probably Ruth's trauma. They were, like, farmers when they grew up, and a neighboring farmer, well, like, when she was, like, three years old, was always really nice to her, and she has her memory of sitting on this farmer's wife's lap, naked and crying. And she tells a story about when she was about, like, three and a half years old, they were driving, and her father left her at this like neighbor farmer's house. This neighbor asked her if she wanted to play a game. And while they waited for her father to return, she began um, switch like into telling the story in third person. Mm -hmm. And so the man apparently put a key in her overalls and began searching for it and ended up pretty much shoving a bandana in her mouth and sexually assaulting her. And she says that another girl appeared and this is where Dr. Pickens believed that her mind like disassociated Mm -hmm. from her body to like kind of cope with like this trauma. 
Right. So Ruth was sexually abused by this man many times, and she did not ever tell anyone about this, but, like, her dissociating from it was a way to, like, protect herself from, like, the trauma of it. No, yeah, like, in traumatic moments, like, yeah. you, for, for whatever reason, you feel like you're out of body kind of watching it being done from, to like, you. From, like, a third or, person, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So Ruth never completely was convinced that she was the poet until she got, like, a memory one day of her stabbing herself in the mall, and she says that she felt, like, no pain until she, like, drove away and, like, drove down the road. Eventually, the memory kind of, like, faded of her stabbing herself, and she believed that, like, the man on the street did it. Right. So Dr. Pickens said that Ruth was so, like, dissociated that she, like, probably could have stabbed herself and, like, would have been fine. Because she just, like, would get, like, she would just like disassociated so much that like she could have done this to herself like physically ruth thinks that like till the trigger was the man grabbing her on the street triggering the fort scott memory so pickens thinks that it could have been ed but ruth like doesn't think that like ed's heart attack slash mm-hmm. shoulder pain like bothered her that much they don't really know like what was like the original thing of it like mm-hmm. some guy could have like grabbed her on the street and like actually like flirted with her or whatever and been gross but like something triggered her and like caused her to like form this poet character Mm -hmm. so it's still a question if the original attack in fort scott occurred but ed had always remained supportive until the therapy ended in june of 1988 and dr pickens joined ruth in interviews in the people magazine oprah and other interviews her brother carl remembered an argument between their parents potentially discussing the abuse of the neighbor like when they were kids the visits kind of stopping with the neighbor so they think like this neighbor story is like connect the origins of the trauma connect this back to where she gets the pan burn on her thighs Oh, well, that's, like, the attack in Fort Scott. That was the attack in Fort Scott. Yeah, so, like, she maybe, like, made this up. Or, like, maybe this was, like, an attack that she did, like, Mm -hmm. was a victim of. Mm -hmm. But they never, like, confirmed if it was, like, Mm -hmm. real or not. Because maybe it was, like, I don't want to say, like, a mini break. But maybe it was, like, a mini episode of her, like, dissociating. Mm -hmm. And, like, kind of making, like, an attack character like she did later on. Mm -hmm. But... They think that it could be real. They just don't know. So Ruth retired in 1991. She ended up knitting hats for troops in Afghanistan. And she translated books into Braille. She spent a lot of time with her grandchildren. She ended up dying at 89 on May 30th of 2019. And it had passed eight years earlier. So they kind of stuck together through the whole end of it. They chose like not to really charge her because she just spent like a lot of time in therapy. Oh, no. I mean, and... Um, she, it, well, and, 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 I mean, I think she... A, a clearly appeared to have a criminal defense of insanity, like, pretty airtight. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, like, she did, like, commit, like, minor crimes of, like, obviously, like, lying and, like, wasting police resources. Yeah. But, like, the violence she inflicted was on herself. And yeah. it was obviously, the, like, yeah, they uncovered that she had a lot of trauma. But, mm-hmm. I don't know. This was always just very interesting because it's interesting how the mind can do that to you, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, the, the mind scale is really, you know, amazing things. Like, I mean, it... <laughs> This is obviously coming from like like a lot more like trauma, but you also have like that like whole like Wim Hof sort of techniques where you do these weird exercises and you can like do stuff where you just feel like zero pain. Yeah. Or whatever. I mean, no, the, the, yeah. The, mind, the mind is capable of like all sorts of weird things and like the, but the triggering mechanisms are always very, very interesting because you, you, you'd think, like, I guess like we're kind of portrayed in, in television that like you have this deep seated trauma and like there's some specific thing like a like a flag or like some, or like some, like the color of this yeah. bandana is supposed to be, it triggers you, but the mind I feel like is much more complicated than that. Like and sophisticated. It's than layers and layers yeah. of patterns and just sorts of like machinations and like unfold in like the precise order yeah. that like, you know, just makes you kind of fall through like, you know, fall through like a little I mean, plinko like, board to like a very like, specific point yeah. in your brain, you know? I mean, I feel like 
just even like physiologically like they don't really understand that well how the brain works and like makes consciousness but even like when you're walking down the street and like you can smell like a whiff of something mm-hmm. and you're like oh like that reminds me of like so and so yeah it's like that could if you have like intense deep past trauma like that could just trigger you to like oh yeah something completely different you know last night i for i have no reason like i've, I've no like reason why I thought about this, but for some reason last night I thought about a memory that I had not thought about in yeah, it's just it's at crazy. least fifteen years. I thought about this time that I was I was like in kindergarten. It was like a Mother's Day celebration, and everyone had to do like a little presentation on their mom. And I remember I savagely made fun of my mom. I was just like, I was just like, when my mom wakes up in the morning, she's so mean. And like, like, like she... She doesn't let me eat Hot Pockets for breakfast. I know, I know. And and, and like, she looks, you know, I had this big picture of her like with like a frowny face or whatever. And I'm like, this is my mom. mom. And I remember she was understandably livid at me and i actually remember it being kind of an intense moment in my childhood like but like not like not like she was super a- a- angry at me no, but i just like felt awful about it yeah, you know I mean, it's probably the first time you're like oh i fucked up yeah exactly exactly and so like i was i remember i was like up like up up at night before going to bed and i was like man like i haven't thought about this in ages it felt like yeah. this like an old well, retread of some like borderline yeah. you know uh crazy do you memory like, is there just like memories in your past that like kind of trigger like i mean this is probably something we talk about any other time but like deep like it's not even like i mean i have whatever i'm very com- like happy with my childhood but like there's things that like really kind of formulated my like mindset as a child mm-hmm. that like i would randomly like still think about and like one time there was i was walking around in my middle school and it was like two floors and this building is pretty much probably condemned at this point but the, like, top floor was very, like, flimsy. So when you'd walk, like, the lockers would, like, you could, like, hear people walking because the lockers would kind of, mm-hmm. like, boom. And this kid who was older than me one time was walking down the hallway and he was, like, kind of, like, made, like, a fat joke at me because I was walking and the lockers were being loud. And from that point on, I remember being extremely body conscious. I didn't think about that for, like, the longest time. And, like, the other day it just, like, came up and I was, like, wow. Well, that was upsetting. Call out number seven. Fucking dickhole from Grace's eighth grade class, you know. Calling me fat as like a hundred pounds seventh grader. Coming for you, dumb piece of shit. I don't know who it is, but I will come for you. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Traumatic from outer stuff. But I guess the resources I used for this, um, Once Upon a Crime, episode 145, Ruth Finley and the Poet. That is actually a very interesting podcast. Yeah. This person, though, they're obviously like writers and stuff for this. She talks very fast. I was listening to this and trying to like kind of like get the story down. Yeah. And I had to like pause it every like two minutes because yeah. she was just like. Blah, 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 blah. But anyway, there's also a true crime database article by a man named Nucleus. Interesting mm-hmm. name. And a Medium article by Corey Mead. Thank you. And then don't forget uh, Christmas with the Cranks with uh, Tim course, Allen, Jimmy course. Lee Curtis, and uh, Dan Aykroyd. Yes. Shout them out. Give them give them the press they deserve. Well, I'm deciding to the source. No. I agree with you. <laughs> are you, are you going to cite... Me so horny? I think we can probably sign out on that one. All right. You ready? Good All right. night. All right. Me Goodbye. so horny. <laughs>